Well, welcome all of you joining us online as well as those of you who are, are meeting here at Central Campus along with others of you meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bearspaw, Bridgeland, and South Calgary. Well, we're continuing our study in the Book of Romans and just to give you kind of a high-level overview, the Book of Romans is really all about how we can have a close and a meaningful friendship with God, which is really the primary reason that he created us. In the first five chapters, the Apostle Paul talks about how we can begin a relationship with God or justification. And in chapters six to eight, um, he spells out how we can grow closer in our relationship with God or sanctification. Now, as we've made our way through the first five chapters, you've probably noticed that there's a significant focus on sin. And that's because sin not only keeps us from knowing God personally, but as we're going to see in chapters 6 to 8, sin also keeps us from growing closer to God and living the full life that God intended for us to live, a life of freedom and victory in Him. Sin at its core is pride, or the inclination to live our lives independent of God. It's a defiant attitude that either dismisses God completely or says to God, you know, I don't want you or anyone else telling me what's right or wrong or how to live my life. And God despises that attitude because it's sin, essentially, because it not only hurts uh, our relationship with him, but it also hurts us and our relationship with others, which is why as long as we dismiss him or ignore him uh, or defiantly go our own way, his wrath and judgment is directed at us and our sin in the same way that any loving father's wrath is directed at anyone or anything that is hurting their child. And being the object of God's wrath is, serious, uh, is a serious problem because we are incapable of fixing this issue in our own strength. But the good news is God made a way. In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made a way for us to become a friend of God through his son, Jesus, who came to this planet and ultimately died in our place on the cross to pay for our sins. And as a result, God's wrath and justice was satisfied. And when we put our complete trust in Jesus, we become, the Bible says, a new creation. Our sins, our regrets are placed <clears throat> on Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness is placed on us. It's called justification. Justification means we are set free from the penalty of sin so we can begin a relationship with God. Well, now as we come to chapter 6 through to 8, 
the focus changes from justification to sanctification or how we can be set free from the power of sin so we can grow in our friendship with God and experience the abundant life that God wants for us. And so if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and join me in reading a portion of our scripture lesson today. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I'm well aware that my words won't be understood or make any real difference unless the Holy Spirit of God illuminates minds and penetrates hearts today. And so in these moments, I ask that despite our capacity to be distracted and preoccupied, Lord, that you would break through to each person today in some small or significant way, and that we would not only be open to you and what you would want to teach us, Lord, but that we would have the courage to do what you call us to do or to be what you call us to be. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, whenever I speak on the subject of grace, in other words, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, and not on the basis of our performance or good work or keeping a set of rituals or the Ten Commandments, someone will approach me and ask, Pastor, if, if my sins are so completely taken care of by the grace and the forgiveness of God and are not going to separate me from Christ, then why should I stop sinning? It's a perfectly logical question, and I'm sure many of you have wondered about that. I mean, let's be honest. There's something inside of us that likes to sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Hebrews 11.25 acknowledges that sin is pleasurable, but it warns us it's only for a short time, and then, of course, we're left facing the consequences or the cost of sin. And yet, even though we know from our own experience, and more importantly, from the Scriptures, 
that sin is costly. We often sin anyways because something inside of us compels us to do so. So when we hear teaching that tells us we can enjoy sinning while escaping the consequences for sinning, well, even if we're a bit tired, we'll perk right up and we're all ears. Tell me more, Pastor. You know, back in chapter 5, verse 20, you may recall Paul making this statement. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The ancient monk, Rasputin, he took this verse completely out of context, teaching that the key to greater joy in life is to sin all the more. Because the more you sin, the more you're going to experience God's grace and forgiveness. And as you can imagine, he had quite a following. I mean, you've probably noticed that a lot of the newer churches these days have interesting names and especially have interesting taglines. Well, if Rasputin lived today, his church would probably be called something like the Sin All You Want Church. And sadly, like Rasputin, There are many people today who either fail to or probably more likely refuse to understand the true meaning of God's grace in order to justify their sinful lifestyle. Well, to ensure people not use this verse, verse 20 of chapter 5, as a license to sin all the more, Paul addresses the issue directly in chapter 6. In verse 1, he writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And depending on which translation you use, Paul responds with an emphatic, may it never be. By no means. God forbid. Or as one translation puts it, no, no, no. Now I think that's pretty clear, don't you? I mean, what part of no, no, no don't people understand these days? Now, I should clarify. Paul's not talking here about the occasional failure to keep God's principles and precepts and commands. He's referring to a lifestyle of sin. He's talking about Christians who go on on absolutely unchanged in their lifestyle from what they were before they put their trust in Christ. Their attitudes, their language, their actions continue on as they always were before. You know, these people really do need to examine whether they are in the faith, whether they have truly repented and are followers of Christ. And so make no mistake, if you're wondering if God's grace gives you license to keep sinning habitually, Paul's answer is, may it never be. And beginning in verse 2, Paul explains why. He writes, we, referring to those of us who are justified by faith in Christ, he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? If I am, now, of course, that leads to even a deeper question. If I am dead to sin then why do I still struggle with sin? How can I possibly 
uh, live a holy, God-pleasing life when sin is still alive and well within me? Well, these are the questions that Paul addresses in chapter 6. He essentially says, if you want to find freedom from the power of sin, you need to know something, you need to believe something, and you need to respond to or act on something. First, you need to know the truth of who you are in Christ. Look at verse 3. It starts out saying, or don't you know? Now look at verse 6. For we know. Look at verse 9. For we know. There's something we need to know first. We need to know the truth about who we are without Christ in our lives and the truth about who we are with Christ in our lives. Secondly, we have to believe the truth of who we are in Christ. In verse 11, God through Paul gives his first command in the book of Romans. This is what he writes. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now the word count is a bookkeeping term. God says, look at the ledger. Look at what God has done. And believe not only that God tells the truth, but that he can be trusted. Who you were in Adam, for example, is dead. What you were in your old nature is no longer your identity, is no longer who you are. It no longer defines you. You see, knowing the truth is very important, but believing and embracing that truth of who you are in Christ is quite another. And then thirdly, we have to respond to or act on the truth of who we are in Christ. Verse 13 says, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now in this message, we're going to address only the first of those three principles that we just reviewed very quickly. If we want to find freedom from the power of sin, we need to know who we are in Christ. And the first step toward that is understanding what the Bible says about who we are as human beings. Now, what I'm about to explain is one of the most important truths in all of Scripture. And if we understand this, it will be incredibly life-changing. And it will bring clarity to a lot of Paul's teaching in chapters 6 to 8, along with many other New Testament passages. So please track with me as closely as you can. You see, one of the first things the Bible tells us about ourselves is that the most important part of who we are is our spirit. This is what separates us from the rest of creation. I mean, if you think about it, plants only have a body or a physical um, uh, shell. 
Animals, like dogs, have a body and a soul. Now, the jury's still out on cats, but we won't go there. I'm just kidding, cat lovers, just kidding. But unlike the plant and the animal world, we humans have a body, soul, and spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4.8, 18 rather, we read this. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Dan Stone, who I credit for some of what I'm about to explain, he points out that this verse contains two truths. One truth talks about things that are seen or temporary or earthly. The other truth talks about things that are unseen and eternal. On the screen is a diagram of what this looks like. Above the dotted line is the eternal, unseen realm. And below the line is the temporary seen realm. And of course, there's really no such thing as a line there because these two realms coexist. As Christians, we have the privilege of living in both these realms. However, because we think in concepts, it helps to separate these two realities with a line just to help us to understand them better. Now, as 2 Corinthians 4.18 indicates, the realm above the line is invisible. It's eternal. It is changeless. It is timeless. It is the realm of spirit and of God's absolutes. It is the realm of positional truth, which means what God says about who I am. It is the realm of justification. The realm below the line is visible and temporary. We call it the natural or the earthly realm. The Apostle Paul called it this age. It is the realm of creation having a beginning and an end. It is the realm of past, present, and future. It is the realm of birth, life, and death. It is the realm where we as Christians often say, I want to grow in Christ. It's the realm in which we see both good and evil. Whereas the eternal and the unseen is the realm of who I am in Christ, the temporal and the seen is the realm of who I am becoming in Christ. It's the realm of sanctification. Now make no mistake, we're not talking here about a Greek dualism or Gnosticism in which the spirit realm is all important and the earthly realm is unimportant or even in some cases is seen as unreal and unnecessary. No, both realms are vitally important to God because he made them both. We are simply acknowledging what Paul says, that there are two realms and that one 
is greater than the other because remember, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us to focus primarily on the eternal or the spiritual realm. Now, the Bible speaks to both of these realms. The problem is sometimes we get confused about which realm the scriptures are speaking to. Sometimes we read a passage and we assume it's referring to the earthly temporal realm when in fact it is speaking to the eternal spiritual realm. A good example of this is the verse that we're looking at right now in Romans chapter 6 verse 2. It says, we are those who have died to sin. Now notice this verse doesn't say we no longer want to sin. It doesn't say we shouldn't sin. It doesn't even say we are slowly sinning less. No, it says we died to sin. Now many Christians read that and they wonder, well, how can that be true? Because sin is still alive and well within me. And the result often is a lot of self-condemnation. But we need to understand that when Paul says we died to sin, he's talking about a positional truth about the eternal, the spiritual part of you, not the physical or soul part of you in the earthly seen realm. As we're going to see in a moment, we died to sin because something dramatic happened to our spirit within. And it wasn't something that we accomplished at all. No, it was accomplished through Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 14 helps us to understand this truth even more clearly. It says this, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now at first glance, I mean just think about that verse for a moment. At first glance, this verse is confusing. Because on the one hand, it talks about us being perfect forever, and yet at the same time, we're being made holy. So which is it? Are we perfect forever? Or are we in the process of being made holy or being made perfect? But you see, the reason it's confusing is because this verse is actually speaking to both realms that we just talked about. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, in the eternal spiritual realm, God has already perfected those of us who are in Christ. That is a positional truth. It reveals our position or how God sees us in Christ. In the eternal realm, God sees us as forgiven, as righteous, as perfect, even as Jesus is perfect, not because we are perfect or live perfectly in this life or in the earthly realm, but because Christ is perfect and in the spirit realm, we are in Christ. 
That is our eternal, spiritual, above-the-line position in Christ. However, experientially, below the line, in the earthly realm, this verse goes on to say, we are still in the process of being made holy or being sanctified. So you see, it is vital we understand these two realms. Now my sense is that many people struggle understanding the spiritual part of us. You know, they can understand the personality, which is our soul. They can understand the physical part of us, but the spiritual part of us. And so I'm going to use a visual aid or a symbol, which the scripture uses to describe our human spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So with that in mind, I want you to think of your human spirit as a vase that's inside of you, made, of, made to hold something, like the vase up here to my right. Now the Bible tells us that in the beginning, when man was first created, Adam and Eve's spirit, represented by this vase, was full of the greatness and the glory of God. And as a result, God's loving, joyful, caring, holy character permeated every part of who they were, their soul and their body. But when they sinned and they rebelled against God, their vase was emptied of God, as it were. In other words, their spirit died, and their vase was filled with a kind of deadly poison. And in the same way the life of God permeated and positively impacted everything Adam and Eve did before they sinned, now this evil poison began to permeate and negatively impact all aspect of their humanity, their soul, and their body. Where there was once love, there was now lust and selfishness. Where there was once generosity, there was now selfishness and greed. Where there was once cooperation, there was now competition. And as we learned last time in Romans 5, because we are all born in Adam, this has been passed on down through the generations to us. We are born spiritually dead, separated from God, and our spiritual vases are filled with this evil poison. That's the way we are made. What the body does is always a reflection of the soul and the spirit. In Mark 7, 21, Jesus refers to what comes out of a person's heart, which, by the way, is another word for a person's spirit. And Jesus says this, for it is from within, out of a person's heart or spirit, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, 
theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And so here in Romans 6, 2, when Paul says we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? He's saying when we by faith embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, our dead spirit, our vase is emptied and cleansed of sin through the blood of Jesus. And in its place, we receive the life of Christ, which means we are made spiritually alive, that Jesus is alive in us, and our spiritual vase is filled with the very life of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reinforces this eternal truth this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Now in verse 3, Paul illustrates this through baptism. He writes, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now this isn't referring to water baptism because we're dealing here with how we died to sin. How we became separated from being in Adam and how we became joined with Christ. And water can't do that. Only God can do that by his spirit. In John 1, John the Baptist said this, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain, referring to Jesus, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is referring to here in verse 3, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which places us or immerses us into Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says exactly the same thing. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, referring to the body of Christ, the church. Now, you may have heard teaching on being baptized by the Spirit after you become a believer. But Paul's teaching here is very clear. You are baptized by the Spirit the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, even the water baptism is not the way of salvation. Jesus commands all of us, as his followers, to be baptized for at least two reasons. One, in simple obedience to him. And two, because it actually serves as a wonderful picture or example in the earthly realm what has happened within us in the eternal spiritual realm 
realm. Because in the eternal realm, you are in Christ, what happened to Christ happened to you. In the same way, when we were in Adam, before we came to Christ, when we were in Adam, we, what happened to Adam, and when Adam sinned, affected us. Look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In other words, when Jesus died in the spirit realm, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. And when he arose, you were made spiritually alive again. And baptism, you see, water baptism is a picture of that. You see, now that we are in Christ, as Christ goes, so go we. And that is what Paul goes on to explain in verses 5 to 10. And let's just read this together, and I'll just give some explanation as we do. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, that self that was in Adam, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, I want you to notice that this verse I just read doesn't say we have been set free from our sins, plural. No, it says we've been set free from sin, singular. Which means when we put our trust in Christ, we die to sin and are freed from the rule of sin or the old nature in the vase of our lives. And the implications of this truth is you are no longer identified by your old habits, by your addictions, or by your sinful behaviors. That's not you anymore if you are in Christ. That old you, the old you in Adam, is dead, buried, and never coming back. Look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So how do we know we're going to live with him in this life and the next? Well, because Jesus was raised to life, so will we. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Jesus conquered death and he died for sin once for all. He can't and he won't die again. He won't do again what he did for us when he died on the cross. Death 
has no power over him. As a result of his death, burial, and resurrection, both sin and death died that day in the sense that their power over us died. They died as our master. They died as the reigning principle in our lives. Look at verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You say, well, hold it, pastor. I thought Christ was sinless. And yet here it says he died to sin once for all. Well, Jesus was sinless. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains that even though Jesus did not sin, on the cross, he was made sin for us in the sense that all the sins of humanity were placed on him. And that is why he died, to put all of our sin to death once for all. And this is the truth that Paul says we need to know. Though we continue to live physically in the earthly realm, in the spiritual, eternal realm, a death has occurred that forever changes us. For example, before I embraced Jesus as my Lord and Savior by faith, I, Henry Shore, was an Adam without God's Spirit. I was spiritually dead, I was a guilty sinner, and I was the object of God's wrath. But because of Christ's death on the cross, the old me in Adam is dead and gone. He's been crucified with Christ. Now, I am Henry Shore in Christ, a person who is totally forgiven and righteous in the eyes of God, not because I live perfectly in this life, trust me, I don't, but because in the eternal spiritual realm, I am in Jesus Christ and he is perfect and righteous. And friends, what is true of me is true of you if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. Paul says the moment you trusted Christ as Lord and Savior in the eternal realm, you died. And that changes everything. It means you are no longer a slave to sin. Yes, you're still going to battle with sin. And we're going to talk, talk more about that next time. But Paul wants us to know and to understand that having died to sin, the big difference is sin is no longer your master. You are free from the power of sin, free from the condemnation of sin. Sin no longer controls you because you are now in Christ and he is in control. You see, Jesus didn't just come 
to die for us, as important as that is. No, he came to live in and through us. And friends, if you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, then this has happened to you. God has permanently joined himself to your spirit. Your spirit and he are one. It's no longer you against God. It's no longer God up there and you down here. No, he is in you. Your spiritual vase is full again with the very life of God. And knowing and believing this truth is the key to finding freedom over the power of sin in your life. Ray Steadman illustrates this principle with a story. He says, the home next to ours has been inhabited by two different families over the years. The first family, he writes, was a rather difficult family, the kind of people who would never keep the yard or the house in order. Soon after they moved in, their brand new home and their brand new yard began to show the effects of their style of life. The yard was littered with trash and garbage. The lawn was dead for lack of care. Their house was in shambles. It was never clean or in order. Well, the day came when those neighbors moved out and new neighbors moved in. It wasn't very long until it became evident that a different kind of people lived there. They cleaned up the house. They painted it. They repaired it. The yard was cleaned up. The lawn was dug up and replanted, and it was cared for from that time on. So what happened? Well, there was a change. Because there was a change in ownership. And church, this is what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, if you want to be freed from the power of sin, before you try to do anything and try to fix it all yourself, in your own energy and your own strength, there's something you have to know first. There's something you have to know and believe to the core of your being. And that is that the old owner of your vase and all of your sins and your shame and regrets has died. You are now under new ownership. You are now in Christ. Sin and all of its destructive poison is no longer the master of your spiritual vase. Christ is. And as you know and as you believe this truth, your attitudes, your behaviors, and your life will begin to change from the inside out because you now have a new person, Jesus, living within you. And if you will surrender your life to him completely, in the prophetic words of Isaiah, 
this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father and Prince of Peace will change you from the inside out for his ultimate glory and for your ultimate good. You know, friend, in those moments when you feel overwhelmed with shame and guilt, those times you feel that sin's winning the battle and, and, and you're losing hope, I want to remind you that there's a wonderful counselor who wants to encourage you and will encourage you and guide you through his word. There is a God who will empower and strengthen you by his grace and give you his precious peace. And there is a good, good father who loves you, who tells you that you are his own and that he will never leave you or forsake you. Believe it. Live it, friends, to the glory of God. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? And let's ask ourselves, Lord, again, what, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what are you calling me to do about it? If you don't have a friendship with Jesus, if you're just tired of sin and sinning and suffering the negative effects of sin, I just want to tell you and remind you again that all you need to do is reach out to Jesus in faith. Just say a simple prayer and ask him to forgive you. And he will. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you of all of your regrets and your sins. He'll come into your life and he will begin to transform you and empower you to live the life that he created you to live. Let's just go to the Lord right now.